no one ever told me I couldn't be a rabbi. Yeah. Which is really interesting to me considering I didn't know any female rabbis. Hey everyone. Thank you so much for listening. This is the very first episode of Jew-ish. We have a term in Judaism, beshert. It means destiny, that something is predestined, that things have been arranged for the best, and that they worked out exactly as they should. I just can't help thinking about that when I think about this episode, this show, even this timing. I started production on this podcast in November of 2022 after being laid off. The idea for the show, of course, was born much earlier. I guess in some form I've been thinking about this for many, many years. My mother is a Jewish educator. I have a Judaic Studies graduate certificate. My brother is a Jewish educator in Israel. This type of asking questions and having conversations is just really, really deep in my family and really, really deep in Judaism. One of the very first episodes I knew that I wanted to do was with Rabbi Susan Shankman of Washington Hebrew Congregation. I'd heard Rabbi Shankman giving a sermon over the High Holy Days about her journey to becoming a rabbi and how that was deep in her family. So I reached out and we scheduled an interview. And then we rescheduled the interview and we rescheduled it again. Finally, in mid-May of 2023, the stars aligned just in time for the very first Jewish American Heritage Month. It was also just before the official installation of Rabbi Shankman as the first female senior rabbi in Washington Hebrew's 170-year history. So, yeah, she was a little busy. So, here is the first episode of Jew-ish with the wise, the kind, and the pretty darn entertaining, now senior... Rabbi Susan Shankman. We did it. Hey. Yay. So why don't you give me the brief introduction of who you are and maybe a little re... Some of the reasons maybe we had to try again a few times. <laughs> Got some big announcements, I think. So I'm Rabbi Sue Shankman, uh, now a senior rabbi of Washington Hebrew Congregation and uh, came into that position officially in August. And it's been... This year has been a... Um, a wonderful and wild and crazy ride and just uh, adjusting to this new position, even though I've been at the congregation for 22 years. It's been it's been really, really wonderful and exciting uh, and just a, a joyful time. I mean, it's it's huge. It's not just huge for you personally. It's huge for Washington Hebrew because you're their very first female senior rabbi. Correct? Yes, I am the seventh senior rabbi in our history. We were founded in 1852 by an act of Congress. Uh, so we've been around 170, said 171 now because we just celebrated our 170th year, 171 years. So the first woman in that time and, uh, and only About the seventh time. rabbi. Yep. <laughs> About time. <laughs> I love it. But that's actually, that's actually what made me want to have this interview with you. And thank you so much for, for making time for me. This popped into my head as I was sitting in high holiday services and um, I've never, you know, don't tell don't tell the rabbi, but I've never officially become a member of Washington Hebrew because I'm like, you know, Jewish. That's sort of the thing. Right. <laughs> I come on high holy days. I do. And I sit and I listen. And this past year 
we weren't really officially out of COVID yet. We kind of aren't. For a lot of people, we right. really are not. Right. Um, but it was the first, really, certainly the first gathering here where people started to really feel comfortable. Washington Hebrew was always very careful to make sure that there was simulcast mm-hmm. and that masks were requested longer than a lot of other places so that people could feel comfortable here and feel safe. Um, and I remember hearing your sermon and I was so moved by it. And more than anything, obviously I want you to tell the story, but I just remember that you knew from a young age that you wanted to be a rabbi. And especially in light of what you just said, I mean, these were not the days when women were quote unquote allowed to be rabbis. How did you even know that that was a possibility, that it was like a path? It wasn't even allowed. Right. That's a great question. And, um, and when I, uh, when I think about, or when I thought about what I was going to say to the congregation, knowing that I had just been named senior rabbi and the timing of that was not that long before the high holidays, although I, I had a sense of what the timeline was, uh, but really thinking about what, what do you say in that scenario, especially having been in a congregation where people have heard me speak for 21 years at that point, And I've shared a lot about, uh, about who I am and, and, uh, my Jewish identity. And, uh, and I started down one path as I was thinking about, uh, thinking about, uh, what I wanted to say. And then I spoke to a few colleagues and just sort of who shared with me what they did in similar scenarios where they had been in a congregation for a long time and became senior rabbi. And, uh, and one of my colleagues said, why don't you tell them what you love about them? Mm. Uh, and it seemed like a perfect place to start because clearly I know them, they know me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we shared lots of really wonderful and, uh, and intimate and personal life cycle events and mm-hmm. moments and moments as a congregation and community. And, and so that was, a the inspiration for where I started. And then I also thought, even though they know me, they're getting to know me in a new way. Mm-hmm. And some people may not have ever heard my origin story, so to speak. <laughs> Here. Hi. Hello. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a story that is certainly, even though I've told it, um, a few times over the years and I share it in different, in a, in a variety of different ways when people ask me why, why I became a rabbi or mm-hmm. how did I know, when did I know all of those questions? And, um, and for me, it really was, it, it's been a part of the fabric of my existence from a very young age. And part of that is because of my family. Mm. I actually come from a very long line of rabbis. Uh, we can trace the generations of rabbis back. Well, my grandfather did a lot of gene- genealogy and really traced it back to about the 14th century. I We have a, a book that my cousin published for all of us that is my grandfather's telling of the family story. Oh my gosh. And, um, and rabbis on both sides of, of his family. And my grandfather was my rabbi growing up and when I was very young. And I don't know that I never knew it wasn't a possibility, even mm-hmm. though I was uh, three years old when Sally Presan became the first uh, the first female rabbi of this generation. There were wow. a few earlier, uh, a, f- a few earlier attempts over history, um, but not as 
longstanding in terms of it didn't lead to other women at the time becoming rabbis. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I was very young at the time. I was also very involved in, in synagogue life. My grandfather was the rabbi and Mm -hmm. we, our family life revolved around the life of the synagogue and vice versa. As my dad always used to say to us uh, when we were growing up. And then certainly as I came into this role and also being married to another rabbi that, uh, that family events and celebrations are community events and celebrations and vice versa. And, and that's truly how I was raised and lived my life. And somewhere along the line when I was very young and you heard me tell the story of at the age of three saying in a very loud voice, I want to go where Papa is and pointing to the Bima the reality is there was a little bit more behind that story that I knew that there was a bathroom behind the Bima, which was a bathroom that I was used to using when that I was, was at synagogue. Bathroom. Exactly. But it was where he was standing at the time. Yeah. Uh, so that familiarity with, with the synagogue and that, that comfort, it was home. but at the same, at the same time, it was home very much. And, uh, and at the same time, even though that, that certainly was a story that my parents told over the, the years, mm-hmm. I actually have an image of it. Yeah. Uh, and it, it is what I often think about as my earliest Jewish memory. And, uh, and, and at the same time, I think it was, it was also a, a in a way, this, this very uh, visceral sense of connection to Judaism. And no one ever told me I couldn't be a rabbi. Yeah which is really interesting to me considering I didn't know any female rabbis until I was probably uh, later in high school Mm -hmm. uh, or in high school maybe. And, uh, and so it wouldn't have been something that I was, you weren't absorbing it from the atmosphere. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that I also give a lot of credit to my parents, to my family who certainly were uh, lived an egalitarian lifestyle style and our family was really built on those values that, that everyone's voice was, uh, was, was heard. Everyone's voice was important. And, um, and so I, I just, I was encouraged to embrace my Judaism in whatever ways I did growing up. And, and I think it was, I think it started when I was in probably, I can remember in kindergarten that there were other kids in my Sunday school class who said that I, you're, you're going to be a rabbi one day. And it was just because that was a family business. I love it. And somewhere along the line, I really started to think about the fact that really that was, that was my calling. I Mm. I always felt called to it. And you were uh, like, what else would I be? Right. And, and I even, and not to say I didn't try some other things to see, I just want to make sure this is the right, right decision, the right choice for me. I was certainly very familiar with the, the, lifestyle of a congregational rabbi. And that's really, that's important. Truly what I wanted to be was a congregational rabbi. Uh, and so even with, with all of that, it was just, it's, it's in my DNA. It's, it's part of the literally. fabric of my being. <laughs> yeah, Quite, quite literally. Gosh, I'm just trying to think back my, uh, and where we, did you grow up? I grew up in Tucson. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, a pretty active Jewish mm-hmm. community, very involved. They're very present in the community. Um, so like, for example, when I moved to Georgia and the people I got to know there were like, oh, you're the first Jewish person I've ever met. I was like, how is that possible? Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? Which which is interesting because, I mean, Tucson still sort of registers as like a small town on people's radars, even though it's like a million people in the greater right. metropolitan. Anyway, I remember vividly it was Rabbi Stephanie Aaron and she was our first female rabbi. And 
even then, I remember just having the distinct impression she did not have an easy time of it. Hmm. That whether it was the congregation or the board, quite likely, who knows, you know, my mom was the head of the religious school at Temple Emmanuel in Tucson, which is very sadly now defunct, which makes me really, Hmm. really sad. But the building has been repurposed and renamed, I should say, not even renamed. It's a new congregation with the rabbi that I had as a child. And now my sister and her kids go there. And I like can't, I can't even take it. It's like, (laughs) oh, Rabbi Lochheim is back. He was my favorite. And you can go back home. (laughs) And I exactly. Oh my God, I have goosebumps. And, um, but Stephanie Aaron did my sister's wedding. And so like we never, once it came into our orbit, it didn't go away. And our mom was very, obviously our mom was a Jewish educator. She was the head of the religious school. You know, certainly according to her, everything was because of the board, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And, um, but yeah, I mean, when you say that about, you can go home, the image that you give of, but that was where pop pop was. He was on the Bima and I could go there. I remember so distinctly being little, little. I mean, I was six when we moved to Tucson, so I wasn't like three. Right. But I remember the sanctuary was so beautiful and it had had these like towering, not unlike here, these floor to ceiling, like towering stained glass walls. The walls were all stained glass. And um, the arc was gorgeous. Way at the back of the Bima, the Bima was very wide. Um, and the doors were always unlocked. Mm-hmm. They were always unlocked. And I remember in my head, I was sneaking in there, but of course I wasn't sneaking because it was for all of us. And right. I know that now, but at the time, you know, maybe I was eight or nine and feeling like, Ooh, I'm being sneaky. <laughs> Ooh, I'm, no one's in here. Nobody knows I'm in here. And having that feeling of like, I felt like I should be quiet. Yes. But I also felt like I could lay on these pews and smell these old books Mm. and crawl around on the same floor that I used to sit on in color doing high holy days when my mom would just like feed us, you know, (laughs) uh, lifesavers to keep us quiet. And it never felt like I couldn't go up to the Bima, even there. And it wasn't home for me in the way it was for you. But like it is now. It really is. Mm -hmm. And going with my sister to pick her kids up from Hebrew school at the same physical Hebrew school where I went to Hebrew school. I'm like, oh, my God, how did this happen? So last night I was with our confirmation class uh, in the sanctuary here and uh, we were up on the Bima rehearsing and, and putting together their confirmation service. And these are kids I've known their entire lives. Mm-hmm. And one of them said, I, I remember, and they were sitting in chairs. We put a bunch of chairs up on the Bima for them, besides the chairs that are usually up there. Mm-hmm. And one of them said, I remember, did, did we once come up here and sit on the floor and you unrolled the whole Torah for us? And I, you know, I didn't say to them, it, it wasn't the whole Torah, but they, <laughs> it felt but we like did. It. We, we, <laughs> we sat them down, uh, in, in a long row with like feet to feet yeah. and we unrolled the Torah in front of them and we wanted them to feel connected to that place wow. and have it be familiar. And for many of them, when they were in uh fifth grade, we do a, a sleepover, a Shabbat tone at the synagogue and mm. the, the kids come with their families to services. I and then, loved that. <laughs> and then, and then they, they stay over, they have dinner, they do programming. And among the things that we do overnight is we bring them into the sanctuary. We have 
we want them to get comfortable in there. Mm-hmm. There are some sacred moments we share with them, but they also do, they do a scavenger hunt around the building. Nice. They, they come in and they're really uh, engaging in connecting with one another, but yeah. in that space. So it feels like theirs. So that mm. also when they get to the point of B'nai Mitzvah, they feel that sense of ownership. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting. It's a big space. Our sanctuary is, is huge. It, it fits about, uh, it's uh, close to 2,300 people. Wow. And typically when we have one student for a bar, our a bar bat mitzvah will be in the chapel. It's a smaller space. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit more intimate. Also beautiful. And, and also beautiful. A very, they're, they're both beautiful spaces and they're different. Mm-hmm. And the sanctuary can feel very big and intimidating, mm-hmm. especially for a 13 year old, especially for what if you don't fill the house? Exactly. I mean. <laughs> well, yes. And, and it's intimidating for rabbis and cantors yeah. on the high holidays when it's it full. Has a presence. And, it yeah, really it does. really does. And, and you need to use a much louder voice in there to fill the space. And yet what I've noticed of late is that we have a, a lot of students who choose, even if it's, it's just going to be them on the Bima, not, and they don't have a partner for their, for their B'nai Mitzvah, that there are a lot of students who choose to be in that space mm. because they feel really connected. There's just a, a real resonance for them that this sense of connection and, and history, especially for those who, whose parents grew up here and who have, you know, multiple generations. We have families who are many, many generations. And it's, it's pretty incredible to have that sort of sense of connection to a place. And you talked about it with your, the synagogue from your childhood. I, I recently was back at my, the synagogue I grew up at, not the same building that is, it's different building (laughs) than that one. But even then I, it was the same uh, the same sanctuary where I had my bat mitzvah mm-hmm. and I, I got up to speak. And the first thing I said was, you know, what they, they talk about when you go back to places you were when you were younger, yeah. that often they seem smaller than yeah. they did. Well, the truth is at my home synagogue, they actually did lower the bima. It's <laughs> a little bit closer to where everybody is. Oh, it's, so it is and, smaller. So it is. It is. <laughs> it's not just you. Because I haven't grown that much. <laughs> You're the same height as, it's kind of also like a Jewish woman thing. I'm exactly. the same height as I was when I was 13. <laughs> oh my gosh. You, you said something that is making, something is happening in my brain now that is threading together what you said about, yes, it's about connecting with each other. And of course they're socializing and that's really what they'll carry with them forever and ever. But also in the context of this space, almost like in my head, it's almost like a, like a gossamer overhanging. Mm -hmm. You can see through it, but it's tangible. This sense of space Mm -hmm. of this place it's, you know, in the way that I can still smell the old books and I know what that mm-hmm. carpet feels like. And I know that the, the, I know that you have to put the prayer books back quietly because the bottom of these creak, you know? <laughs> so we always tell the B'nai Mitzvah kids when they, after they tell people what page they're going to be on when they're reading, they're going to read from the Torah, but people can follow along. Mm-hmm. I always tell them, we always tell them, take a, take a moment because all the books are going to start banging. <laughs> they put these books back in and they're going to take the <laughs> out. Yeah. <laughs> it's the old shuffle, the uh-huh. old shuffle. I love it. And what that's making me reflect on is like, what am I trying to accomplish? I think that I started this podcast. I think I started this show to get at that analogous 
sort of sense of like this webby, not mm -hmm. confining, but tangible, but not definable sense of what it means to be Jewish in, especially in the United States where we, you know, jokingly often describe ourselves as, yeah, Jewish, right? Mm -hmm. And I describe myself that way, even though, as I just told you, you know, my mother was a, she was the head of the religious school. She was, that was her career for 20 years. She's a para-rabbinic fellow. I was consecrated, confirmed, bat mitzvahed. I did a, a Judaic studies graduate degree in grad school. And yet when people ask me if I'm Jewish, I usually say, I was raised Jewish, but you know, I'm Jewish. But I think a lot of American Jews describe themselves that way. But there is something that is different. There is something that unites us that, you know, maybe it has nothing to do. Uh, we don't keep Shabbat. You know, we don't keep kosher, whatever. We maybe do show up at shul three times, twice a year, three times a year, maybe. But there is something, even if you never come, mm -hmm. about being raised Jewish your lens is different. Just everything is different. It looks the same on the outside. We go to the same schools. Sometimes we don't, but you know, for the most part, you know, we go to the same schools. We eat the same lunches. We go to the same movies. But everything is different somehow in ways that aren't necessarily visible externally or tangible or describable. I mean, I don't know. I wouldn't, I don't know. Do we call it culture? Do we, what do you make of that? That's a really interesting question. And I, I sat with a student a little earlier today uh, who is really looking at and trying to, to really discover that for himself in the context of family and trying to get a sense of, well, what do we believe? Mm -hmm. I, you know, we might not do, we'll come to certain things. We certainly are connected to the synagogue. We mm -hmm. have a sense of connection to the community, but what about what we believe? What do mm -hmm. we, what do we believe? And I, I joked with him about the the, the old joke that uh, that you probably heard saying that if you have two Jews, you have three opinions. <laughs> yes, so course. there's there's a diversity of opinions yeah. out there. Even even the idea of Judaism as a monotheistic religion that we believe in one God, mm -hmm. and there are different ways that people both express that belief and understand that relationship and connection. Mm -hmm. And even to the extent that if somebody doesn't believe in God, mm -hmm. they're they're still part of the Jewish community. That's so and huge. My mom always raised me that, that you can be an atheist and still be a good Jew. Yeah. And, and the idea about being about Jewish and yeah. I, I think, I, I think that there has come to be, we could look at historically what those reasons are and yeah. societal trends, et cetera. There, there are people who describe themselves as culturally Jewish. Absolutely. Yeah. And, that may, that, that doesn't, none of us is in a place to judge or decide who is, what is the right way to be Jewish. Yeah. There are so many ways to express our Judaism and to connect to our Judaism and relate to our Judaism. And, and for some people, the cultural aspects are the meaningful yeah. pieces. And for, for others, it's about doing social justice, being involved in the world. For others, it's about mm -hmm study and others, it's worship and, uh, and observing holidays. And there are so many different combinations. It's sort mm -hmm. of that there are two Jews or three opinions, however many Jews there are in the world, whatever that actual number is, there are that many ways to be Jewish yeah. because we all find our, our own, we find meaning in different ways. And, uh, and who's to say what is, 
what's most meaningful to me or what is meaningful to me may not be meaningful to you in the same way. And there are going to be things that are in common, but we Mm -hmm. all, we create our own paths. And, uh, and I think about that a lot, especially when I'm working with, uh, young adults with whether B'nai Mitzvah age students or confirmation class who are in 10th grade or, or people who are choosing Judaism or people who are reclaiming their Judaism Mm -hmm. or deciding late in life that they were raised Jewish, but they really didn't, uh, observe or, or wanted to want to reconnect. There's so many different ways to do that. And that I think is some of the, the richness of, of Jewish heritage of Jewish tradition. Uh, there's a, there's a saying that there, there's a teaching that appears in a number of different ways in our sacred texts and in, mm-hmm. in uh, certainly in Pirkei Avot uh, and in some other places as well. Uh, one, one particular version. So there, there are all these, we, we have it at, at Passover. We just sat around our Passover tables mm-hmm. and we talked about the four children mm-hmm. and, uh, and we, we don't, no one is rated as any better than another, but they each have a role. A, a role. They each yeah. have a place at the table. Mm. And the same thing is true. We have it for at, at Sukkot when we talk about the symbols that we use, the lulav and the etrog. Mm. Uh, there are a number of different versions of how those relate to us or how we relate to them, that there, there are four species that are, that are contained within the lulav and etrog. And there are some versions that connect to different parts of the body. But there's a, a really wonderful teaching that talks about the four different types of Jews, that there mm. are those who, um, who, who study, there are those who do good deeds, there are those who study and do good deeds, and there are those who don't study and don't do good deeds, and mm. that all of those are part of who we are, all of those yeah. are part of the community, and, and we need every perspective. And I think it's recognizing that, uh, that there are many, many ways to to be Jewish. Yeah. And you can add the emphasis on the ish, but <laughs> the, the reality is the same for all of us. We're yeah. all Jewish in our own way. That's so interesting and wonderful and just as intangible and tangible as what I'm grasping for here. You know, I love that. And I think there is a Jewish way of moving through the world and it's so difficult to describe. All we can do is describe it. We can't define it. Right. Mm -hmm. And you've done such a nice job of explaining what I think to me is one of the ways, one of the things that makes the way of moving through the world as a Jew, which is I need all of these perspectives. Mm -hmm. We need them all. It's not just like, oh, that's valuable. That's valuable. No, no. It's we need them. We are not whole without you, whoever you are. Right. Whatever you do. And there's a place for you. And there's a place even even you. if you're just on the journey to discovering what that place is and you're not fully there and you're not sure what that path is. Uh, there there's an another idea and concept that I love that it speaks to it in a little bit of a different way, but it's this idea that that we have a balance between what we call the keva and the kavana. Mm. And that speaks specifically, usually that's usually applied to to prayer in particular that there's the keva, which is the fixed liturgy, the words that we say, the words that are uh, recited by the community that are that are in a fixed order. Mm-hmm. And then there's the kavanah, which is our, our spiritual intention, what we bring mm-hmm. to it. So I, I like to think of it as there's, there's always the head and the heart. There's mm-hmm. the, the balance between the, 
the whether we say it as the intellectual and the emotional, but there, but that there's a, a balance between it. And for for some people, and we know there are different types of learners, there are different ways again that we relate. But we do have a rhythm, mm-hmm. and we do have a an order that things happen throughout the year. Whether yeah. it's we we have various levels. There there are the holidays and the the structure of that that always happens in the same way, so that we can grasp mm-hmm. onto it, and it gives us a sense of security. The same way. Whether we talk yeah. about the the Ten Commandments or the Six Hundred and Thirteen Commandments <laughs> or uh, rules, if you go to camp and there are yeah. you know we set we set up structures that allow us to to not only to feel safe um, but to ha- to to be able to manage expectations as a community mm. and the whether it's the holidays and and certain aspects of what we do on a weekly basis mm-hmm. on a yearly basis uh, and then whether life cycle events and other pieces of daily practice, those are all things that, that, that are part of that Jewish way of interaction, interacting in the world that, that yeah. give us that sort of uh, model or at, at least framework. Yeah. And then, and then we each bring to it a little bit of, of ourselves. And that's why you have certain traditions that are, that you'll experience at certain, in certain homes, whether for Shabbat or for Passover or any other time. And, uh, and it might vary a little bit. And, yeah. and part of that is, is just that personal expression, which yeah. is an important piece as well. And what we absorbed from our mom mm-hmm. or our pop mm-hmm. <laughs> and those recipes and the, yeah. and the items that are on the table that then we, we just, you just do it relate to, you know, this reminds me of childhood and, oh, yeah. or this reminds me to a time when I was together with my community yeah. and those things that we, we take with us. It's so, I don't know why it's such a difficult thing to talk. I mean, it's identity, right? Identity is a squishy, it's just like culture, right? The thing that everyone knows what it is, but no one can define Mm -hmm. it. It's, and and like when I said, there's a Jewish way of moving through the world. You like, you like closed your eyes and you nodded slowly. And we exchanged a knowledge of something. Like we know what we're talking about. I think, I mean, inclusivity is a big part of it. I think, um, in, in a very basic way, in the way, not just like we need all the four children, we need all the four elements or all of the indefinite elements. But I also want to stress, like, you also don't have to be Jewish, right? Like the, even the concept of the, without going, we don't have to go too far down the road of like the righteous Gentile, but Mm -hmm. like it was in there from the beginning with Boaz and with, um, Moses's wife. Zipporah. Thank you. With Mm -hmm. Zipporah. Mm -hmm. I mean, from the very establishment of you are the chosen people. You are the ones who will go out of Egypt and be chosen by your God from the very establishing of that Zipporah was not Jewish. Well, and, and I think that that's, I don't want to call it the challenge of today, but, but a reality that, that has also been absorbed and is part of, of how we relate to the world and how, how, um, that intersection between Judaism and, and other communities of faith and, is that the balance between the particular and the universal and that that is a really important concept in Judaism too, that we struggle with to make sure that we are both retaining those elements that, um, that are unique to Judaism Mm -hmm. and also that we're inclusive and welcoming and, uh, connected to our neighbors and are part of that larger world community. And 
we see a lot of different ways that the Jewish community has chosen to connect and engage or yeah. not with yeah. the wider world, with the with the interfaith community mm-hmm. and and to be true partners. And and I think that that's also the challenge is, is both having and holding on to those elements that uh, that are really at the heart of Judaism that are unique to Judaism, mm-hmm. that make Judaism Judaism. Yeah. And like the formulaic structures. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then and then being able to share with our with those of other faiths and, and backgrounds. And I think that that yeah. is that's the kavana of being Jewish. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you no, off. No, no. That's <laughs> just thinking <laughs> You know, I didn't mean to interrupt, but you know, we're Jews. So <laughs> And this too is, is being Jewish. And this too is, yeah, exactly. This is an important element and being short. And so, <laughs> yeah, this is so fascinating. And I think, you know, one of the things I, th- I think about a lot, you know, my brother is now a Jewish educator too. He lives in Israel, um, but he's coming back. He's coming home to Philadelphia. Mom is going to be over the moon. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Is, you know, also the structure, like you were talking about, what makes us feel safe, right? It's never really been safe to be Jewish. Not really. And, um, when you think about that, the culture of assimilationism, right, that we, that especially a lot of Jews that are from Ashkenazic backgrounds that we absorbed in Western Europe, you know, um, that did not work out for us the way that we sort of maybe thought it would or hoped Mm -hmm, it would. mm -hmm. Um, And still that kind of, you know, feeling of like, I'm not going to be the one to quote unquote speak out against anti-Semitism because all it does is trigger more anti-Semitism. It literally is like, oh, you would say that or you control the media anyway. And rah, rah, rah. There's so many lived experiences that come down to us, not just through the telling of the stories of how we are supposed to feel that we were at the foot of Mount Sinai as well. Not just that. But, you know, this other thing, right, of it's that it's that generational trauma, but it's also that generational learning. I mean, how do you define where are we at now? Five, five thousand years, fifty two hundred years, five thousand seven hundred eighty three, fifty seven hundred. <laughs> years. I'm so sorry. I should have remembered. Oh, my God, mom, don't yell at me. But it's like, you know, all of that is in there. Right. That fear, that passion, that love, that wanting to be a part of the community of which you are a part or that you know, that painful absorption of the rejection of the community of which you are a part that causes you to live apart or mm-hmm. the not being given the choice about living apart and living in the mela or in the, right. in the ghetto right. or, you know, and absorbing that into your real circumstances as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and yet somehow that all comes together, at least in the United States, in our own specific and interesting blend, at least in, you know, I grew up calling Reform Judaism, which Rabbi Fischel, I believe, calls um, progressive Judaism. Mm-hmm. We just, you know, I don't know. It's like, and yet we are all the same, even though we are so different. We share so much. It's really hard to, I don't know if there's a question in there. (laughs) Well, I I know you touched on, on the question of, and not really question of, but, but anti-Semitism and and how we, I think the, the idea that um, that's been a part of our history for centuries. Yeah. uh, And, and recognizing that, we we have a role to play because of what we've experienced mm. to ensure that that others feel safe too yeah and i think we certainly have seen what it means and learned what it means to be an ally and yeah also recognizing how important it is to have allies and others who who also stand up for for what we believe is right and that's certainly when we talk about 
Reform Judaism at its heart was, and and in its origin was often called prophetic Judaism mm. because the the idea being for the early reformers that in the 19th century that uh, there was meaning in in the, the books of the prophets and in what the prophets taught and and really about uh, about our social responsibility to mm-hmm. our to our neighbors uh, and. I think there is that sense of the the shared experience, even even though my experience growing up in New York, mm-hmm. living in now in DC and living a few other places is very different from somebody who might have grown up in France mm-hmm. and made Aliyah. And the stories are different, the experiences are different. And there are also certain strands that that we can relate to because mm-hmm. they've been part of that history and part of the same way that we we sit around our Seder tables every year. We tell the same story. Yeah. And we tell the same story because, A, we want it to be remembered. Yeah. But B, it also reminds us uh, that we we know what it means to be stranger or in some periods in history and even currently in some places and by some people to be hated. Mm. Um, and, and to know fear and recognizing that we, uh, we have an obligation certainly to our own community, but also outside that to, yeah. to ensure that that is not, uh, the experience that, that, that's not the world that we, uh, that we have a responsibility towards that, that we have yeah. a responsibility to create a, a world that really is one of of peace in the truest sense of the word. And, uh, and we catch glimpses of it. And I do think yeah. we, we experience those moments of, of wholeness in our world. Mm-hmm. We, we, we certainly feel it at moments together as a Jewish community, but also in partnership. And when we, uh, when we are engaged in some of that holy work yeah. with others and, and with, with everything from even, even at the base level of what the Torah tells us about, feeding the hungry and, yeah. um, and clothing the naked and ensuring that, that people have a place to live and that those who are on the outskirts of society are brought in or are cared for and provided for, and that, that we can do that. And, uh, and those are some of the things the the everyday things that can give us those, those opportunities to experience holiness and, yeah. and, and, and together with our neighbors to, to really um, be God's partners as well. What you just described is a huge part of the tikkun olam, which is the obligation to repair the world mm-hmm. that that is explicitly laid upon mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always thought it was fascinating. My mom's explanation of being, quote unquote, the chosen people was not that we were chosen for exceptional treatment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was the opposite. It was that you are the ones who are saddled with the exceptional responsibility of bringing holiness to this earth, which means you have to strive to be holy, not in the way of, you know, it doesn't even, not necessarily in dogmatic ways or whatever, but what you're saying, these meaningful things of protecting and respecting the humanity of everyone, which is why we don't do charity. We do justice. We do tzedakah. Well, and we, and we just read the holiness code in, we just finished reading that part of the Torah in the book of Leviticus that. How about that for timing? Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And I, in the, in the very middle of the Torah, so the five books of the Torah, the middle book 
Vayikra or Leviticus, yeah. uh, the middle portion, Kiddoshim. And in, in the heart of that, and I like to think of it as the very center, central verse, mm. middle verse of of all of it, of the, the middle Torah. verse of the middle book of exactly. the Exactly. Yeah, okay. Uh, uh, we, we read, mm-hmm. that you should love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. And the holiness code, as well as the Torah itself, is is uh, described as a, it's, a, it's our guide. Mm-hmm. It's, we, we should live by it because it, it, it describes and sort of outlines for us how we should treat our fellow human yeah. beings and why because we should strive to be holy like God. And we can do that when we do these things. And so the holiness code talks about a number of different areas, but, but the passage that follows after you should love your neighbor as yourself talks about things like, um, like leaving the corners of the fields during harvest for gleaning so that not only that people have food to eat, those in need have food to eat, but also that they have the dignity to be able to, do the, that work themselves, that it's not just given to them, but that yeah. there's a sense of, uh, of ownership, uh, and empowerment as well. And, and a number of the other pieces that are in there too, uh, speak to that. And, and I think that that's a really powerful concept that that idea of tikkun olam yeah. is, uh, it's just a little piece at a time Yeah, and where, you know, if you've ever, dropped and broken anything <laughs> and just to the imagery of, of what tikkun olam at its, at its heart and origin really is about. If you've ever had anything that's shattered and the pieces yeah. go everywhere or any, any similar analogy, it's impossible. It's, it's so hard to find every piece and put yeah. it back together. And, um, and thinking about how we repair everything that is broken. We can't do it all at once. Yeah. And we have to do just a little bit at a time and we can't do it by ourselves. We have to be partners with each other and with others who have the uh, experience in different areas. And, and really that there's, there's a lot of good we can do. And that, that I think, you know, when we, when we say those words, which we, we talk about tikkun olam in every service, Mm -hmm. there's a a prayer that reminds us that this is our obligation. This is Mm -hmm. what, whether, and the language of that prayer is challenging and difficult mm-hmm. for us today. Uh, yeah. There are a few different versions of it, uh, but really at its, at its core, I think of it as a, a reminder to us that, that we can't just sit back and, and accept things as they are. You really yeah. just made it easy for me, not just to understand, but to explain the concept of tikkun olam, which a lot of my friends, Jewish and non-Jewish, have asked me, you know, what does that mean to you? Or can you explain that concept to me? before. And my mom always said, in addition to, yes, we have to repair the world, but tikkun olam begins at home is the teaching. And you are obligated first to be sure that your home, the thing you can touch, the thing most immediate and close to you Mm -hmm. is full of love. People are happy. They are safe. They are respected. They are well. The things you can fix that are in your immediate power, that's where you have to start. Mm -hmm. And that that seems fine. And yes, you can always extrapolate that out to be like, yeah, because if everybody did that, then all the homes would be happy and we wouldn't have all the fine. Great. But what you just said about the, this shattered piece is that's the important part is like, whatever it is that you're doing, if things are fine for you at home today and in a month, you may need to turn your attention back to it. Mm -hmm. Then yes, now you can turn your attention to these other two pieces that you can 
try to fix and put together that are within your grasp. I love that. It's how do we not get overwhelmed by the responsibility? And this is how. Right. And, and we have this line in our see door in our prayer book that says that we should pray as if everything depends upon God and act as if everything depends upon us. Yeah. And prayers are wonderful, but they, they can't make the difference. They can inspire us to then go out and act to, to make the world whole. So we are sitting here and Am I right in that this was just named Jewish American Heritage Month? Yes, it was. And I've been bombarded by emails from a number of different organizations. I with, and I got it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and with lots of resources about how we can observe it and mark it. And yeah. So, connect. yeah, I'm reading the White House proclamation from April 28th, which did not give me enough time to get this podcast out, <laughs> by the way, for Jewish, but okay. So that... Um, uh, I don't need to read the whole thing to you, but basically this month we celebrate the enduring heritage of Jewish Americans whose values, culture, and contributions have shaped our character as a nation. For generations, the story of Jewish people, one of resilience, faith, and hope in the face of adversity, prejudice, and persecution has been woven into the fabric of our nation's story. It has driven us forward in our ongoing march for justice, equality, and freedom as we recommit to upholding the principles of our nation's founding and realizing the promise of America for all Americans. Does it mean anything to you to see this recognition in this formal way of Jewish American Heritage Month in the U.S.? I think the fact that in this moment in our history and in what we've experienced as a, as a Jewish community, both in America and worldwide, in terms of the rise of anti-Semitism, the, uh, the, the affirmation of and recognition of our our place in American society as uh, as one that is worthy of recognition, along with, by the way, many other cultures and um, and populations and demographics yes. that need to be to it's it's a wonderful reminder of uh, of the magical uh, reality of of what the United States of America could be and uh, and I think is um, is really important in, in strengthening a sense of Jewish pride yeah at a time when as you talked about just a little bit ago a time when there's there's fear yeah um, there are people who might be uh, might hide their Judaism because yeah. they don't want to call attention and to then have attention on a national level to recognizing contributions yeah and it's not saying there, yes, there are people who say Jews control this or that. Yeah. Um, it's not saying that Jews are better than. It's recognizing our our place as part of American society as yeah. a productive group that contributes. Yeah. Um, that is an equal partner, yeah. along with many other equal partners. And I, I think that that's really important, um, and certainly to the, the American Jewish psyche in, yeah. in this moment. It, it also allows us to feel seen and supported. Um, by, you know, by, by our government, by yeah. people in positions of power, um, who also have the, the, the power and the ability to, to impact on a national level, that conversation about anti-Semitism, which we also see happening. Yeah. And it's really, really important. Yeah. 
I didn't really ever think, I don't know why I didn't think this, um, but I didn't really ever think that in my lifetime there would be a time that I felt afraid to be Jewish in the United States. And I'm lucky I live in D.C. I don't feel that here. But I know so often the Jewish population of any country maybe because we're such a tiny, tiny minority and because we can often blend in in a lot of ways, but we're just different enough in some ways. Often when a society is in trouble, the Jews are the canary in the coal mine. Mm -hmm. And when we started seeing really overt, terrible vandalism again, remember the Jewish cemetery with mm -hmm. the smashed headstones and then Pittsburgh and then, and obviously the last year, six months especially, has been... Not great. Mm -hmm. um, it fills me with, I don't want to say dread, <laughs> but trepidation. And it is nice to have some kind of a beacon of, yes, we see it too. We see it too. And I think it empowers others to also be able to stand up. And I think that's something that we've, we've also seen happen. Um, and that it's not just the Jewish community calling out just as, as a Jewish community, we would not allow other communities to be the only ones yeah. speaking out against racism, against bigotry of any kind, yeah. um, against homophobia, and against uh, any, again, any hatred or intolerance. And uh, I, I think it also, at a time when there is a little bit more trepidation, yeah. that that we also have this this source of pride yeah, and a reminder that, that we can be proud and we should be proud of our Judaism and of, uh, and of our, our contributions yeah. and who we are. You know, I think it's also important to note it doesn't fix anything, right? It doesn't mm -hmm. fix things just to have someone say something in a microphone or in a proclamation, but at least it provides us a platform right. that we can build off of. Yep. Well, the traditional idea being, you know, the scapegoat, yeah. which we, we have in Jewish tradition, actually, speaking of the high holidays, uh, connected to the high holidays and, and whether it was the, I'm not going to get into all the, the, the textual background, but, but the, the goat designated for Azazel, yeah. where we would, we would cast our sins or the idea that we have for right before Yom Kippur of, yeah. um, Kapara, of waving a, the, of, of transferring our sins uh, to some sacrificial animal. Or, yes. Oh my God, you finally explained the chicken to me. <laughs> and this but is we also thing... have this with, with Tashlich, with the idea yeah, of casting Yeah, we do it with the bread, our... right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that's so, you know, and that's a conversation I had when I worked at a newspaper many years ago of like, hey guys, can we not use every time that we talk about Yom Kippur, can we not, every time a Jew is mentioned in the newspaper, use a picture of an old man waving a chicken around? <laughs> I've never seen that in my life. That is not what American Jews look like. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not a great, I'm not saying that people don't do it. Obviously they do. But it's kind of perpetuating a stereotype about Jews being foreign and strange. And they all are old bearded men with black hats and, and pious. And it's just not, it's not who we are. Right. right. It's part of some of us. It's not who we are. It's not what we do. It's just, we are many things. We are all the things, just like everybody else. So true. It's beautiful. Oh, thanks. And now, for an awkward segue, 
maybe it's actually not awkward. It struck me when you opened your sermon with your I am from poem. And um, it was very beautiful. And we only have a few minutes left. Do you, is it easy? Could you pull it up? Do you I think can. you could read it for I me? Could. I would love to hear it. One moment to pull it up. And, you know, really, I said awkward segue, but honestly, it's probably a perfect segue, right? Because how did we even get here, right? Right. <laughs> how did we even get here? Um, so this is, so I, I used this poem in, uh, in my Rosh Hashanah sermon, and it is based on the I Am From Poetry Project, which was inspired by the author and teacher George Ella Lyon. Uh, which it's been used by teachers around the country and uh, and is often used by teachers to give students an opportunity to share who they are, tell a little bit of uh, their background, insights, images that that illustrate their core essence. And I'd heard it before because each of my kids has done something along these lines mm. at some point in an English class. And my youngest, uh, child. My youngest is a um, freshman in high school and it was part of a way that they were introducing themselves to their English teachers. And it, it was just a couple weeks before Rosh Hashanah. And it, mm. and it ended up being that I had this, I, this spark of an idea that, wow, that could be a really great way when I think about what it is I want to share with the congregation yeah, and, and what they mean to me um, after 22 years here. Uh, to to really be able to express that, yeah. Uh, so it's there's a construct to the a framework for this poem, which is what I use as a basis for what I'm about to share. And a lot of this is really connected to Washington Hebrew and yeah. images that were my my hope was to to focus on or to bring in shared images that that people could connect to over their history, however long or short. Yeah. I am from the processional statues in Krieger Lobby, from the Congressional Charter and the menorah in front of Macomb Street. I am from confirmation photos and history that line the walls and sunlight filtering through stained glass windows on Rosh Hashanah morning. I am from the dogwood tree outside my office window, whose white flowers always bloom the week leading up to confirmation, and from the maple trees along the driveway at the Julia Bindemann Suburban Center whose golden and red leaves herald autumn's arrival. I am from Camilorn Nathanson Kiddush Cups and Candles in the Sand Tables, from a long line of WHC senior rabbis, Stern, Simon, Gerstenfeld, Haberman, Weinberg, and Lustig, from all the dedicated staff who care for each one of us and our buildings. I am from Macomb Street Shabbat and Falls Road Shabbat, from Brisket and Kugel Bake Off and Blanca Brownies at Oneg, from Mitzvah Day, Sunday Stuffings, and MLK Workday, and from Dancing with the Torah, dreidel spinning competitions and edible dreidels, Purim spiels and Purim carnivals. From standing under the portico at Macomb and Bindemann on rainy mornings during religious school drop-off, and from singing, clapping, and dancing at Shabbat Sings, Tat Shabbats, fun fairs, playground playdates, and more. I am from the sacred moments we share, moments of joy and sadness, moments of learning and discovery, moments of engagement and connection, ordinary moments when we experience holiness and a sense of belonging. I am from each one of you, for we together are Washington Hebrew Congregation. Thank you. 
Thank you so much. Thank you. Jew-ish is produced, edited, recorded, and hosted by me, Hannah Gaber. Special thanks to Washington Hebrew Congregation, of course, and to Rabbi Eliana Fischel, without whom this would almost certainly not have happened. Keep your ears peeled for her. She'll be on later in the season, too. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe. And don't forget to recommend us to someone else who could use a Jewish friend. Jewish is a Say More production.